Hello and welcome to episode three of Her Majesty's Tech Podcast, still working title, sitting here in Emile's way too large loft for, is it zone one? Uh, zone one. But, but say hi, Emile. Hi. Yeah, still zone one. Yeah, this is way too this large. This is my office. Welcome. Okay, it's, it's your office. Okay, fair enough. But as I've already pointed out, you've got a very nice space here if you wanted to get into VR or yes, get some room be buying scale. The quest. I'm pretty sure I'll buy it now, actually. I might even order it during the podcast. <laughs> it looks nice. I, I can blame you. I, I love my, my quest. So we wanted to talk mainly about one thing this episode, and that is developing for Android with Rust. Yes. And mainly because we, I mean, we could also talk about iOS, but I have no fucking clue how iOS works. So let's keep it to Android and, and then I can actually contribute wor- something. It's, it's both better and worse for iOS, but I can go into some of that. Oh, okay, okay. Then we can talk about this too. But first, um, you said you at least watched the Google I.O. keynote. Was there anything that you found particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was the same. It basically was deja vu from every other keynote. They talked about privacy for 90% of the time. <laughs> Is that actually something they've talked so much before? Is that a recent development? Uh, I think it's this year that I think it was the key topic from Microsoft's build, Facebook Cafe, right. Google I.O., and it'll most likely be at WWDC as well. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no way that Apple is going to jump off the current hype train that is around this topic. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, I mean, that was the main takeaway. It's all, all about privacy. It's I thought some things were interesting, especially because they announced, you know, they announced one thing that I had, I have a note of in my note app of an, of a startup idea <laughs> and they announced it. So that was fun. Um, okay. I mean, now you can share it. Can't yeah. You? The, the whole like, um, offline machine learning stuff or the on-device machine learning stuff. Oh, that was actually my favorite demo by far, because this is a feature that they built around this that is actually going to affect me in my day-to-day work. And that's just fast Google, what's it called, assistant. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't use, I use the assistants a bit. Um, it's slow though, I don't know. Yeah, it's Do you, super slow. I noticed this even compared to Siri, which is pretty much useless, but it's fast. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I had a note like with like detailing that whole idea and even the implementation detail of how it would work. And Google's implementation is uh, is I mean it basically reads from my note, which is fun. <laughs> it means I know I still remember some of my machine learning stuff well enough to have gotten the implementation details right. And uh, I think the the really interesting thing in here is as all all apps really move to end to end encryption. Uh, doing a bunch of uh on server analysis of messages is just like not gonna work so we need on device machine learning that can that can actually operate on the unencrypted stuff uh for example doing spam detection and messaging apps or doing any kind of detection of harassment and so forth that is very possible if you can read all the messages on the server isn't really possible it without this uh, if you're using end-to-end encryption. So that my startup right. idea was around that, basically. Okay, I actually, actually slightly misinterpreted this because I thought you meant more the smaller models. So that was the, the part that enabled them to make the 
Jiggle assistant stuff so much faster that they were able yeah. to shrink their corpus or whatever they have to transfer onto the device. So there is just now more knowledge on the device. But so the active learning part, because this will all be pre-computed, so this right. cannot happen more on the device. Right. And they're being able to have those models on the device while still updating the models without sending all the data to the server. That's the like the big innovation. And that's that's the that's the idea I had written down in my notes from six months ago. So that was fun. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, there was nothing like super exciting it was uh they made android look out like ios even more but i mean in, in which the, way i to be honest i haven't actually paid no i mean attention well, so i mean i should be sharing <laughs> with them but like the, yeah they are converging day, like basically now ios and android look exactly the same i mean they look more the same every year but uh but something like the gesture system is now exactly like ios which is great because ios gesture system is fantastic so hooray for android users and like some of the uh, location privacy stuff is also straight copied from iOS, which is good because iOS does a really good job there. Like being able to say, yes, you may use location, but only in the foreground wasn't possible before on, on Android, Yeah, uh, which is just an obvious feature. So I'm happy that's coming to Android. It's, it's quite interesting to me how they also at least partially respond to some rumors and myths. The location stuff in the background is based on real problems that clearly exist where there are some shady apps that track you whilst the app is in the background and then sell that data. But the microphone in the background stuff, well, I totally approve of them giving you more permissions to disallow this. I don't think there are many, if any, apps that actually have the capacity to transmit people's voice in the background to their I mean, service and nothing, do something useful with it. Nothing has been proven that anybody does it. And I think this is like this would be incredibly noticeable. So like if nobody's noticed anybody doing it, then nobody's doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I would say like pe- we would have noticed this. Precisely. So but yeah. still, they're being proactive there in a sense, because even though it clearly doesn't happen at the moment, it might. Why not? Yeah. If it's so, ML, ML on the devices gets better, you might enter a future where you could process the voices in the background on the device and then only send the relevant right, information at, back at that stage it's much harder to notice if any app is doing this yeah so that makes sense okay yeah. anything else i overlated apparently oh yeah man just first build one maybe yeah i mean <laughs> it actually the, works yeah who uh, i don't know who wrote the article but i think it was TechCrunch, uh where it's like okay so google made this big deal about foldables but now well, Samsung's is broken, and uh, Huawei got banned by the U.S., so uh, <laughs> shit out of luck, basically. Man, yeah, the Huawei thing is uh, interesting. I just broke today the second stage of this. but Yeah, so we'll see what happens there. But basically, uh, there's no foldables coming anymore, so there's that. To, to be honest, if you are actually convinced that the Chinese are spying on us, or, well, them, then this move kind of makes sense to ban them outright. What I found incredibly silly was these kind of selective bans on certain equipment. It was like, oh, you can't do the core part of 5G, but the auxiliary stuff, that doesn't make any fucking sense. If you have any idea how security works, it doesn't matter if you're only inserting parts of your spyware into the entire process. And then also like, why why can't, the google offer the google play store that doesn't that doesn't that part doesn't make sense like i I agree the part where it's like okay if there's a legit concern yes they can't make all your networking equipment sweet 
go Sweden. Ericsson will win. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's the only viable competitor, basically. There's, like, one more. But, yeah, okay, they don't make your networking equipment, but why can't you sell them Google Play services? I do not understand that, but whatever. They'll yeah, figure it out. Well, it, it's clearly based around the whole stupid trade wars, and we're getting into policy weeds which uh, yeah. isn't really a topic we are particularly well-equipped to yeah, discuss. Yeah, I don't here. know anything about it. So. <laughs> okay, then let's move on. The next topic is Rust on Android. So please, Emil, tell us why is that something we should even th- think about or talk about? Well, Rust is fun. Okay. Actually, can I claim credit for you at least giving it a try? Yes. Nice. Okay. I'll put this on my CV. That though, I gave it a try like 10 times and it was the 10th time I actually started using it. (laughs) So like Rust is one of those languages that are, it requires you to really give it a go. You cannot build a hello world and be like, I love it. You're going to hate it after a hello world. You need to actually give it like two days of coding. I think I disagree, especially for hello world. If you compare this to doing the same in Lua, C++, basically any other language, maybe apart from Python, which probably comes pre-installed with pretty much every PC, then there's so much shit you have to go through first. You have to install the compilers, potentially an IDE that's going to be awful until you've got it all set up. And I think the out-of-the-box experience for Rust is really fun. So when we yeah, talk- Yeah, but then you hit your first borrow checker error. Yeah, but you won't, you won't hit your first um, borrow checker issue with a Hello World. I mean, not- not like in the broader sense your hello yes. world is implementing my, flexbox isn't it no no no, no. <laughs> it isn't like my my broader hello world is like actually writing two functions or something like oh, it's a linked list <laughs> uh, yeah yeah <laughs> or like you're actually... a linked list that's like <laughs> i still don't know how to do that in rust uh, there's like so many articles on it but there's um, there's one particularly great article um i don't know the exact title off the top of my head but there's something like too many ways to implement linked lists in rust and it's actually a good introduction into some of the more interesting parts of the type system there yeah but going back so i tried to learn rust a couple times and like went through the walkthrough and like stopped at step two uh every single time because i'm like this kind of sucks um but after i left facebook i had time on my hands to do stuff uh and we needed a flexbox implementation that wasn't yoga for various reasons i can go into that later but i I definitely did not want to write it in C++, and I definitely did want it to work across a bunch of various platforms. So namely, web, web, iOS, iOS Android. Android, potentially, like, I don't know, and it, PC. It should be like anything. Right. Um, so I look back at Rust. Um, I mean, I like the, con- conceptually, I love Rust. So yeah, I gave it a shot, and this time I was like, I powered through that, like, step two of the intro to rust and and actually like built a flexbox implementation and by the time i was done i i liked rust so out of curiosity what did you actually read or look at to to learn rust do you remember uh, compiler error messages <laughs> okay so no no book or full tutorial no i mean i guide. think i went through the the official rust book like the first like okay i don't know enough chapters to be able to write functions and after that, I just, you know, ad hoc Googling and reading error messages and Googling <laughs> that and kind of like stepping through it. And were the, the, were the error messages generally helpful? Generally, yes. Okay, good. Then I can uh, link a friend of mine who works on particularly the compiler messages to this snippet here. <laughs> yeah, so happy. the error messages are 
I would say for the most part, super helpful. Then in some cases, and I'm trying to trying to remember exactly what cases, but in some cases they're just I mean they're, they're they get a bit crazy with like, oh you have borrowed this and you can't that or one way or another and they ask you to add a bunch of things and then you add those and then you just get an even more complicated <laughs> error and you're like wait 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 take a step back 2018 edition fixed a couple of those things which is good uh there's still some left but for the most part it's it's nice um yeah i remember i i think i told you about the 2018 edition and just gave yeah, i think you- it fixed a couple of things straight away Exactly. Yeah, that was that is really cool because sometimes you can just remove some of the copies that you manu- manually had some letter assignments to just please the borrow checker for one particular occasion. Yeah, I, I just remember having a bunch of like anonymous block scopes right. just to like please the borrow checker and I could remove every single one of them. But yeah, in general, I'm really liking Rust. It it it's it works fine. It works well like the the performance is good and the thing i like most is i don't need to really worry about abstractions costing a lot at runtime because most of the abstractions are like zero cost yeah it's fantastic i think this is those two things make it such a powerful language to have under your tool belt it's the zero cost abstractions at the as one of the core fundamentals of the language design and then it's just the flexibility that it's built on top of llvm and you can basically compile it to whatever you want so that's all the platforms WebAssembly, WebAssembly i whatever the the new kind of interface what? model there is i don't i've never heard of that I, I don't want to try to explain it because I'm just going to make a fool out of myself, but there is now Wasm I, I believe, and that's the more portable version. Okay, I'm already starting to make an answer yeah, of myself. Either way, like it's it's super portable, so that's nice. It has like strong safety, uh, it's fast, it has zero cost abstractions, and like surprisingly, like I mean now uh, the the library I'm building there has basically no dependencies, so it doesn't really matter. But the library ecosystem is actually really good. Yeah, so I built something which I can't really talk in much detail about in Rust, and there I've just been able to pull libraries for whatever I really need out of. Well, I don't want to say thin air because clearly someone worked on this. But crates.io gives you such a nice overview. It feels very npme yes where pretty much every problem that you can think of someone else has already tackled and that's quite surprising to me because the language still feels pretty young in general yeah i mean but the ecosystem feels mature in many ways the the ecosystem and tooling is i want to say like all the good parts from the javascript tooling without many of the bad parts i would go a step further what they've done with RustUp in particular which is the main installation mechanism and update mechanism for Rust and some of the core tooling around it, like Cargo, is way better than anything you have around NPM and Node itself, because NVM is still a fucking shit show on I mean, every that, that machine. I mean, that thing is terrible. Yeah, yes. but I've tried various other mechanisms, and there's like one coming up every month or so, yeah, but so and this none of I'm them gets even like, close to this. It's basically, it has all the good parts, and yeah. then some, without having a lot of the bad parts of the JavaScript ecosystem. So that's like, I'm hella impressed. That's like, it's... It's really good. That That is the main reason I like Rust, the tooling and everything around it. Yeah. And like you also things like 
it was trivial to set up Circle CI for it. Uh, those things, like, that sounds like a small thing, but a lot of languages, Holy it's like, God, yeah. hello, 500 lines of configuration I, that I don't understand. I do remember your tweet about trying to set up end-to-end tests for, for Android, which ended like, like fixing circles. Yeah, fixing circles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it's it's impossible. And the same goes for iOS. Like, it's simpler, but still, like, terrible. Oh, fuck, yeah. And also, once you get to a certain size of Xcode projects, yeah. <laughs> we currently have this where you can choose between setting Xcode build to quiet and then running into the good chance that your project is going to time out after 10 minutes when Travis kills silent processes. <laughs> or you can remove the quiet flag and then get it terminated because it outputs too many logs. <laughs> uh, this is fantastic. Uh, that said, Circle is better than Travis. but uh, Yeah, I, we should definitely switch over. In general, I would say, yeah, the tooling is one of the best parts of Rust. So that's, that's, but in the end, I chose Rust because I wanted to learn Rust and it was like not a bad fit for what I was trying to do. So it wasn't some like great reason, just I wanted to learn it and it wasn't a bad fit. And in uh, retrospect, it's been really good. I would say there's, there's definitely downsides. I mean, I, th- I think I would ch- still choose to write it in Rust today, which says a lot. There, I think the closest competitor, and I wrote this in a blog post, uh, the closest competitor is probably using either just C or Kotlin native. Okay, well, so for C, I'd meet or C and C++ really. The unsafe oh, I, aspects I don't see those at the same really scary. I do not want to write C++. When I look at them from a security perspective, they are pretty much the same oh, Yeah, thing. from a security perspective, yes. Yeah. Uh, that said, the security concerns when writing a Flexbox engine are very low because there's no user input. Yes, that I've I, I try to think about this too, but I don't think I've got an <laughs> adversarially trained mindset for actually thinking of all the possible cases. But just after looking at uh, some of the recent exploits we've seen, which happen on mobile apps in the native space, just trivial, well, no, just buffer overflows using those to then install some sort of uh, at least semi-persistent malware on the phones. It gets me really scared thinking of all the the places that native coders use these days. Yeah, I would feel safe writing. I mean, prefacing this, like, with that, I don't actually know what I'm talking about, but I would feel pretty safe writing this in C. The thing is, you think that there is no direct user input, but you are not actually in control of this if you build some lower level component that is only interfaced with by some high level framework. And who knows what they actually then base their layout calculations on. Well, that would be in a different like environment language anyway, so Rust would have the exact same problem. But not the general memory safety concerns. Oh, yeah, because all of that is in unsafe code. <laughs> I mean, because it's FFI. So by, by definition of the, the actual inputs to, to the functions, even if they come from, from a user, are safer in, in Rust. Yeah, but it's just enums, and it's just enums and C. I don't actually see the difference here. So for this, like, I, I think it's mostly fine. That said, like, Rust makes the code a lot better uh in the end like comparing yoga and stretch which is the uh, me, flexbox me, engine we built like it's half the code size let's think about use after free if you have some way of the user 
manipulating the state of the app and then trick the layout system into a use of the free situation. That could already be the basis for an exploit. Once you run into this place, and that's entirely possible through something that the user might implicitly or indirectly have control over. Yeah. And use after free, just not a thing in Rust. Sure. Yes. I, I still think I could write this safe without any larger <laughs> issues. There's just so there's so little surfaces to, to catch. But but anyways, I still think Rust was the correct decision over C there. The only downside to C is that currently Rust does not support iOS super well. Okay, so how does that manifest itself? It doesn't support the new bitcode format, LLVM bitcode format. Ah, okay. So you basically have to disable bitcode for your whole app to use a Rust binary, which sucks. Uh, they are working on it. I would assume this is at least like partially then on LLVM, but I mean, yes, no, that, it, yes, that is an Apple thing, so... <laughs> It's partially an LLVM, but as far as I've understood it from reading the issue, that is now two years old. Wow, that sounds similar to the ARM... What is it? I think it's ARM v... No, no, ARM is supported. What? What is it again? Mix. No, it's AV, AVR. It's um, um, some ARM Cortex CPUs. So effectively, Arduino support. Oh. That's been in the makings for a long, long time. And the last time I checked, there was like this branch of rust itself that you first needed to check out then patch lvm and get both set up and that's like com- the complete opposite of the experience you normally have where you run some rust up command and just get your tool chain set up so as far as i understand it like bitcode and lvm is not super stable so there's like big differences between versions or something like that and they're using oh. different versions from apple and there's some, like, I just skimmed the comments. But hopefully that's coming soon. Kotlin Native and Go have, like, partial support for it. So they're probably going to do something similar in Rust. That means, like, if you use BitCode or want to use BitCode, you can't use our Rust library. That'll hopefully change in the next couple months. So that's fine. Something that might, again, be based on entirely incorrect observations. Seems like a lot of projects just pin a very particular version of LLVM. And it seems like, especially between the major versions, it's quite a lot of work sometimes to upgrade to the newer ones. So it might be possible that Rust is just a bit behind the LLVM versions and hasn't caught up. Yeah, it might be that. They're working on it, or somebody is at least. I mean, that is the reason to choose C over Rust right now. It's also the reason to choose Kotlin native over Rust. The downside with Kotlin is that because it has such a big runtime with garbage collection and everything, the binary size is just like a lot bigger. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, for some reason, hadn't even considered this. I thought Kotlin native might be some sort of subset where you could get away with no, it's like garbage full, collection, full but it doesn't Kotlin. work because you would either introduce complete mem- uh, manual memory management or, well, have a borrow checker. Right. And why would they just not have that? <laughs> In the JVM. Well, the JVM has a good garbage collector. But anyways, basically the binaries end up... The Rust binaries are like semi-big compared to C, so that's another reason to choose C. You can get smaller binaries, but that's mostly because I haven't put in a lot of work in getting the Rust binary small, I think. You have to put more work into getting it smaller just because C comes with nothing. It's more like in C you add stuff, in Rust you have to take stuff away, and I need to figure out the stuff to take away. But anyways, the Kotlin binaries, like a Hello World, will be like over a megabyte which is too big i remember wasn't there someone who opened a pull request on stretch to make it 
run without the standard library or the no standard yes, flag. Yes, uh, but I haven't looked into that really. <laughs> okay, because I would imagine that this is probably the biggest size saver you could get if yeah. this is all you really care about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then there's some things like the JNI library requires the standard library. Right, okay. Uh, so it doesn't really help a lot. So how does it work? How do you build the bindings for Android and iOS once you've That's got your library set up? easy. You just do rust up, add target, and then you compile. Okay, but so in order to use it effectively on Android, you still need your Java classes that are built. Yes, so it's still by- JNI, still native code, still sucks. Uh, it's surprising. Like the JNI library for Rust is probably the best JNI library I've ever used, which is saying something. Um, it's better than the one like from Facebook. What's it called? FBJNI. FBJNI, Yeah. It's, I would say basically better than that for the most part. Uh, From what I've seen, there's still nothing like bind gen, which is something for C where you can. Right completely auto-generate the bindings in both, basically both directions. So you can build Rust bindings against C libraries, but you can also build C bindings against your Rust function or the yeah, header functions. Yeah, I mean, I'll get into that. Uh, so first of all, the, the JNI stuff works fine. You have to write JNI, it kind of sucks, but you kind of you define your interface once and then you use that. Works. Right. And you write some tests for it, that's fine. It's super unsafe. Every single function is marked as unsafe. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, you write some tests to ensure that. Like unit tests for that. C bindgen works-ish. Oh, really? It does not... I mean, it works. It just doesn't alleviate needing to write a binding layer at all. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very rough. And she still needs to figure out how your idealized api then should look like right you still have to write this layer that is a c layer um because you don't want to see bind gen your internal structs and enums because then you have to write them in a specific way that c can handle and you have to pass around void stars and so so forth and like it's just like not great uh so c bind gen works but it you still need to write a c api layer so it doesn't actually do much i would say but that reminds me of something so my project and there was a very stupid idea in hindsight my project to learn rust 1.0 so i've I've used rust had used rust in the past but older versions were just completely different so i used it back in the days when it still had some when it had built-in support for garbage collection everything but when i wanted to learn rust 1.0 i tried to write a binding layer for yoga and it was just a terrible idea on so many fronts because not only did I have to learn Rust I also had to learn how bind gen and all the different FFI layers worked and then I had to figure out how to turn the yoga API into an intuitive or rather idiomatic Rust library without knowing how Rust works or having used libraries that was a very dumb idea but I actually still learned a few things yeah, uh, especially while trying to build a noise tree inside Rust, and then um, again pleasing the borrow check. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's it's that's all pretty terrible experience. Um, then there's Wasm bind gen, which is like C bind gen, but for uh, JavaScript. Yeah, if you start too. That's really good. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. Like, really like well. holy shit, that is good. However, you still probably want to write a binding layer, and you don't want to annotate your main API. 
just because there's some things that like you that that it can't find you that you want as part of your API. So the, all of this put together kind of the structure for stretch, which is this Rust library I built, is it has one main Rust library that is version and publish as stretch. And then there's three separate crates, one for iOS, one for Android, and one for for JavaScript that implement the binding layer. So they all have dependencies on the main crate, implement just the binding layer, and that's it. Uh, and then I don't need to mix that into the main crate with a bunch of like config, target, equals, this kind of things, compiler flags. It just becomes super clean. Uh, they work on the public API of Stretch, which also means anybody can build a Stretch library binding without contributing to the main repository because bindings are built on the public API. It just ends up being a super clean uh, architecture, I think. Yeah, that sounds pretty great. And how do you ship this to the devices? Yeah, well, like the Stretch core library is on Cargo, on crates.io. And it's actually being used in, I think, like a couple of UI frameworks already. That's uh, really Rust-based cool. competitors to uh, React Native, basically. I've gotten multiple emails from different people working on, on UI frameworks in Rust uh, using it. So that's fun. Uh, and then we also ship to, uh, what's it called? Bintray uh, for Android. Right. CocoaPods for iOS and NPM for JavaScript. Oh, fuck. Let's take a quick break. You know what one of the most amazing announcements that GitHub. I've seen? Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's man. amazing. I... Uh, I'm going to delete Bintray, <laughs> NPM, and Co- well, no, okay, so they didn't announce a CocoaPods competitor. Uh, oh. I'll still need to keep that. <laughs> For now. Man, I, I can't wait to dump Bintray in the bin. It's, Bintray is literally the worst piece of software I've well, ever used. Well, apart from all the other Maven repositories, they are actually even worse. It's right. the least bad one, and that is still right. It's still not... <laughs> utterly terrible. Yes. And it's the best one out there. Yeah. There is this... Great old plugin though, where you can like install stuff from GitHub already. I can't. It's called like Gitpack or something. Uh, Gitpack. Gitpack.io. Yes. That, that that's cool. It uh, well, yes, but it, does it work? You have to have a very particular layout in your repository. So for something yeah, more hate, complex hate like that. Litho, you can't do this. But it does right. make sense because we do a lot of very complex stuff for for Litho. Yeah, right? but I wish they had configuration. So CocoaPods is the same thing. So CocoaPods. You don't actually need a super specific structure. You need a semi-specific one. But man, it's so messy. CocoaPods? Yes. Yeah, it's terrible. Fucking hell. I mean, a lot of this has to do with just Apple and Xcode, but man. I mean, they've done a pretty impressive job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, One thing I don't like, though, is that CocoaPods assumes you're... First of all, they require you to have published a tag with the version that you publish to CocoaPods. Like, you first have to publish a Git tag of version 1 to be able to publish hmm. version 1 to CocoaPods. Okay. This sucks <laughs> for a couple of reasons. But the next thing they they um, they require is that uh, the pod file, or it's called, like, uh, it's not called pod file, but it's called something like that. Maybe it is called pod file. Anyways, the main thing describing your library has to be in the root of your repository. All this together... 
kind of sucks for projects like Stretch, where it's not an iOS project. Yeah, that runs so many weird kind of things that require you to have something at the top of your repository. I hate this. This is like, okay, so Stretch now has the pod file at the top of its repository, even though that's where, like, I mean, none of the iOS code is located there. iOS code is in, like, bindings slash Swift slash something. And the second part is because you have to publish this version number that matches the CocoaPods, I need to version everything according to the, and releases have to be according to the iOS thing. Yes, and before someone says, well, you can't just split it up into multiple repositories. No, you can't. I mean, you can, of course, but it makes things so much harder. Yeah, it's like, I would never do that. That's terrible. Yeah, when you make a big code mod, or, well, uh, as the general public calls this, refactor, then you have to update two repositories simultaneously keep them in sync sync, version them accordingly and no no, you want to have this in one so like no i want it all in one repository and cocoapods makes that a terrible experience but anyways to this github repository thing i can't wait manager what's it called i don't know but github something github npm killer yeah, I'm excited. I'm me like, too. I'm gonna move everything over. I'll take the day off and do move my work projects over. <laughs> I don't care. I just want them gone from Bintray and all the other places. Yeah, like npm actually has like a good user experience for the most part. They have some things that are kind of wacky, but like I'm not that mad at their user experience there. Bintray though is utterly terrible. I also hope somebody fixes the way to like publish Android projects though. It requires like hundreds of lines of configuration whereas npm you just do npm publish oh yeah well have you checked out this is not really fixing this issue at all but have you looked at azure pipelines uh no so i i've just been seeing them more and more and i believe you can effectively do a lot of usual ci jobs but but as part of this oh what's it called this task tool inside GitHub where you can create all sorts of pipelines. Is it pipes? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then I I believe that Azure Pipelines is like one of the mechanisms you can use inside that. And I would imagine that if they do this right, then you could end up in a situation where you just click a few things together. And if if you've already got a Gradle project, then you click a few buttons and then you can publish it to the GitHub package repository. that, that That would be insanely good. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, so uh, back back to Stretch, we we published npm, Bintray, and CocoaPods, and hopefully soon just to GitHub, and that works well. You can just consume it. Of course, like th- that includes the main Stretch binary, which is the Rust binary. It create it includes the uh, API bindings with the uh, form function interface bindings, and that includes then uh, the java swift or javascript files that kind of translate that ffi into an actually usable api layer right on android at least i know you can just bundle the native libraries with your package and it makes it actually relatively easy to use them yeah and same goes for all the other ones i know that for npm you need webpack support you need to use webpack okay yeah so I know that on Android, at least, you still need to have some way of actually loading the native library. Do you take care of this on the stretch side, or do you instruct the users to use something like SoLoader or the in, built-in system.load library? Uh, so right now I do uh, system load library okay. internally in the package. And the reason I do this over... So SO Loader is 
better, but I don't understand why always. I think it's mostly legacy support at this point and like modern Android system load library works Some fine. of that. And then when you do something like SI merging, which you may need to do on Android if your app reaches a certain size. If be- your Facebook use SO loader, basically. It's not that hard actually to run into this thing because I, I, I think it's 128, isn't it? Or 127, maybe? It's some, something around. Sounds like a ridiculously high number, but what this doesn't take into account is that this is the global, well, not the global limit, but the per process limit. And every Android application that you start already comes with a significant chunk of libraries. So stuff like the, probably something like font config and TypeScript. Not TypeScript, what am I talking? Um, <laughs> whatever the font rendering library is that Android uses. No, that's, that's that's another well no typekit is an f- online font service yeah. jesus what is it um free, free something type? free free type is it free type that's free type at least it's something i'm sure it's something uh, but uh, <laughs> i'm not even sure if that's the one that's used on android but yeah, so the, i mean right now we're using system load library because so loader requires passing in a context and system load library doesn't so system load library you can do as a static block and as like it's transparent to the user so so loader you'll have to instruct the user to put in an application class and that is a terrible developer experience and as far as i have seen like 99 percent of apps will do totally fine with system load library yeah as soon as you require any static stuff that is effectively executed at the undeterminable point when your class is loaded you're in a bunch of trouble but i i believe for soy loader you only need to initialize it initialize it once with a context and then you can yes. make load library calls also in a static context but this means like if your class is loaded too early yeah then, then it doesn't then have a fucked. context it's really weird so system load library i prefer yeah. um if and i, I get like, people like commenting that oh no it has to use so loader like yeah we'll switch it's like once you get to this point where you need it, you might just maintain an internal fork to use it. Or, well, I guess they can ask. Yeah, You're well, quite friendly on GitHub. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll change it if people need it. It's fine. But yeah, so that, that all like kind of works. If you download it from, um, I think it's like app visly stretch colon stretch, it'll look like a Java library. There are like some configuration you should be adding to your Gradle file to like do APK splitting based off of uh, the uh, processor type. Right, otherwise you'll just include the eight API. different architectures or something. Yeah, like it's it'll be work without this configuration, but you should probably add this configuration. Right. Okay, we're running a bit low on time, but did you want to mention something about iOS in particular that makes it harder? Uh, no, I mean, that was the BitCode stuff. Okay. okay. The, generally, it works much better on iOS because you get it mostly type safe. Because it works through C and Swift is type safe with C. Gotcha. So that part is like a lot nicer and kind of just works. But you have the bitcode problem, which will be hopefully fixed within a couple of months or so. So like I'm not super worried. Nobody's nobody on the Rust team has says that they don't want to support it. It's just like a thing that's pretty hard to support. Right. Okay. So that means two people here sitting recording a podcast, both of them finishing or having finished a rather large-ish Rust project. I mean, large is a a weird term for this, but a significant project, not just Hello World, but slightly above this. And no regrets so far. No, it's pretty pretty good. And we're actually getting a ton of contributions or a couple of big ones. Um, You did pretty well on Hacker News too. You did pretty well on Hacker News. Uh, I like that site. 
sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, we're getting good contributions from uh, people over at Google and a couple of other places, and they're really helping us out with uh, doing some uh, major improvements. Uh, one pull request now was like 10% benchmark improvement over like that was already optimized code. Nice. And then uh, just making the whole thing work more nicely and work better in with Rust because I'm a Rust noob. So they come in and uh, teach me a thing or two. So that's fun. Yeah, that's that's something I really wish I had too. Just someone reviewing my pull request with a significant amount of Rust knowledge. Can, you can point out all my mistakes I make or things where I could do better. Yeah, and that's the good thing now that people are actually using Stretch to build UI frameworks and so forth. They're... I'm we're starting to get some form of community on GitHub around it. It's not like big, like a big project, but uh, there, there's a, there's a couple of folks hanging out there. So that's good. I'm very excited to see what UI frameworks spawn around this too, because the especially the desktop UI side on Rust is still not great. Yeah, I'm super excited as well. I've gotten a couple private emails from people um, talking about their projects and saying that they'll announce them soon. So hopefully soon. Cool. Then keep us all updated. We should definitely talk about this again. Yes. And so I guess like if someone wants to work on this particular library and get paid for it, they might want to get in touch with you. Yes. Uh, how, exactly. how do they do this? Emiladvisly.app. Fantastic. Okay. And this has been an episode, I really hope you get this right this time, three of Her Majesty's Tech Podcast. Working title? Just in case, uh, this has been episode number four. Or maybe five. <laughs> Yeah, you have a couple of choices here. <laughs> okay, I'm sure I can edit something together that might then actually work. Uh, I, d- just in case, two. Okay, now we've got really all our... Okay, I think we're, covered. we've covered our bases. We're, we're covered. Okay, um, please follow us on Twitter at HMTPod. Yeah. HMTPod, yeah, that's right. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't read anything else. So yeah, please, please just get in touch via Twitter. Cool. See you all next time. See you next time. So last time I had to manually insert the episode number because I fucked it up during the recording. This is not a Google-powered voice thing. I notice you've never listened to the productionized version. No. <laughs> Why didn't you just insert it with your own voice? I didn't want to record anything. Oh. <laughs> it's lazy. And also, I wanted to make it very clear that this was um, like an after effect. Uh, yeah, no, I never listened to the production one. No, it was like, uh, and I just, fuck, I like I can't even count up to three and then I had to replace it and I wanted to make it absolutely obvious because when you do like half-assed and you like try to emulate your own voice in a different scenario yeah it never fits in yeah it, it sounds even worse and so I wanted to avoid this uncanny valley kind of thing that makes sense well you don't use the app that's fine <laughs> we'll definitely keep that in <laughs> Oh, you weren't recording? No, yeah, I was recording. Okay. I was just setting a marker here. Cool. I'm not that unprofessional. <laughs>